to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good morning, everyone. My name is Nkem Aziken. I'm currently a chief resident at the University of Minnesota. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Rafael Andrade. Dr. Andrade is an associate professor and chief of the Division of Thoracic and Forward Surgery at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Andrade has a special interest in diaphragmatic paralysis and eventration and has published various papers regarding this topic. He recently finished a book chapter on this topic and is now working on long-term clinical outcomes on diaphragmatic paralysis. We will discuss his thought process via a clinical scenario of a patient with dyspnea secondary to diaphragm eventration. This includes a brief introduction to this pathology, patient diagnosis and evaluation, uh, which includes specific symptoms, imaging studies, and preoperative workup. Uh, we'll discuss indications, patient selection, surgical procedure options, and postoperative care. Uh, now we'll turn, the, uh, turn it over to Dr. Andrade uh, to give us just a brief um, uh, introduction to himself, and then we'll present the case scenario. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Enkem, for uh, this interview. And um, as Enkem said, I've had a particular interest in this uh, pathology, and uh, we've uh, worked on diaphragm application from the laparoscopic approach primarily, uh, which has been uh, there's a way to approach it thoracoscopically or laparoscopically, and we have opted for the laparoscopic uh, approach generally, if possible, um, because we believe it's technically easier and also um, we believe it causes less postoperative pain since there are no intercostal incisions. Uh, now we're going to go over the case that NCHEM has, and we'll go, from, uh, we'll go from there. Thank you, Dr. Andrade. So the case is a 55-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and BPH presents to your clinic after a referral from his primary care physician with an incidental finding of left diaphragmatic elevation on a chest x-ray obtained during a recent minor trauma workup. The patient has had no previous surgeries. He has a remote smoking history, about one pack per day for 20 years, and he quit 10 years ago. He is generally in good health. How would you work up this patient and uh, what are the important questions uh, you would ask him and what parts of the history uh, you would focus on and what symptoms are important to you for a patient presenting like this? So the first thing is I want to know if the patient has dyspnea uh, because in, uh, diaphragmatic elevation by itself doesn't mean anything if a patient is asymptomatic. And we're treating a symptom, so I would want to know, does he have dyspnea uh, on exertion, and is that something that has changed recently? That'd be my first question. The uh, second question I would have is, uh, does he have orthopnea? Orthopnea in patients with significant diaphragm elevation is a quite classic symptom, mm -hmm. uh, that they lay down and then all of a sudden they can't catch their breath uh, because the diaphragm elevation 
gets uh, pushed up even higher. And another typical symptom uh, in these patients um, that have dyspnea from diaphragm paralysis or eventration is that they have, uh, they can't breathe when they bend over. So I always ask them, if you bend over to tie your shoes, what happens? Uh, and that uh, oftentimes they'll say that they just can't breathe when they do that. The other thing I would ask for is um, if the patient, uh, if the, what the trauma history was, could this elevation be related to trauma? Uh, because whenever a patient has had significant trauma that could lead to diaphragm injury, then that's important in the differential diagnosis to make sure they don't have a diaphragm hernia, post-traumatic diaphragm hernia. The, the patient is unsure if this trauma had just um, led to the elevation, but uh, upon further questioning, you reveal that the level of activity for this patient has decreased over time. He notices that he feels short of breath quite a bit, and on bad days, he has to sleep in a recliner as lying flat can make shortness of breath a bit worse. What are several causes of this pathology, and how do you differentiate them? So assuming that the trauma did not contribute to this, that this has been going on for some time, what I want to know is how long has this been going on? Was there an, any identifiable trigger? Sometimes um, we, we don't really know what causes idiopathic uh, paralysis or eventration. Um, in my practice, probably half of the patients we never identify a, a cause for their diaphragm paralysis or even tration. Um, sometimes I try to see if there was a flu, flu-like symptoms that could have preceded it, um, uh, because we think viral diseases could contribute to uh, phrenic nerve paralysis. And uh, sometimes it can be, it's clearly related to a procedure that they have cervical fusion, that they have uh, heart surgery, uh, something like that that could lead to it. Uh, but I don't try to, don't try too hard to figure out why it happened if we can't sort it out. Okay. It seems like there could be uh, several things that could cause it, but mostly um, no triggers. And, and if this is the case, is there an algorithm that you have published that acts as a guide towards the management of these patients? No, there's, there's no clear algorithm. Of course, uh, diaphragm dyspnea, secondary to diaphragm eventration or paralysis, is to a great extent a diagnosis of exclusion. So we want to make sure they don't have any other major cardiopulmonary pathology that could be contributing uh, to their dyspnea or could be more responsible to their dys for their dyspnea than the paralysis. So we always have to make sure uh, they do they have a cardiac history or not? If there's a question of cardiac history, then we want to, of course, get the appropriate workup. And same with pulmonary history. Are they uh, smokers? Do they have bad COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, anything like that that could be, uh, you know, responsible for dyspnea as well? It doesn't mean that you don't address the, the diaphragm even in the presence of these diseases. I think it's very important, the, um, the dyspnea for diaphragm uh, paralysis or eventration t tends to be progressive. It's, um, it's very clearly dyspnea on exertion. And patients can often tell something happened and they can tell you more or less with a certain time frame 
for the past two years, uh, this has been going on. And usually chronic cardiopulmonary diseases aren't that clear. Uh, you know, there's something they've been having for years. Are there any laboratory tests you would order? Any imaging studies you would get? And what scores or indices uh, could you use to aid in diagnosis? So this is, uh, it's actually quite simple. The, um, what I need to decide that the patient's symptoms are related to an elevated diaphragm, one, I need to make sure the patient has dyspnea, which we identified, and two, that they have uh, an elevated hemidiaphragm. On the left side, it can be quite subtle. You can have a, a left hemidiaphragm that's elevated, but not super elevated, but normally the left one should be lower than the right. So that by itself, that the left is higher than the right, by itself would already raise a red flag. Um, so I go by symptoms, the developed time, the timeline of symptoms, and I go by chest x-ray. I like a PA and a lateral, because on the lateral x-ray you can see if the diaphragm is elevated uniformly, the anterior and the posterior portion. And you can actually identify what might seem a mild increase elevation in diaphragm on the PA x-ray. On the lateral, you can see how that mild increase by itself reduces the lung volume significantly because the, the posterior portion of the diaphragm pushes up so much. So uh, that gives you a better understanding. Of course, it's always good to compare to old x-rays or uh, tests if you have them. Um, I only get a CT scan if I am concerned about the potential for a post-traumatic diaphragm hernia, or if I'm concerned that there might be something causing the diaphragm paralysis, uh, like a tumor, uh, there's any suspicion for that. Otherwise, we don't need a CT scan of the chest. Um, in terms of uh, evaluating the patient objectively, we all these patients fill out the, what's called the St. George's uh, Respiratory Questionnaire, which is a standardized and validated respiratory questionnaire that um, is, is a gives you a form of uh, some sort of measure of their respiratory quality of life. And we have them fill that questionnaire out before surgery and then after surgery again. And finally, in terms of pulmonary function tests, they're not great. Uh, often you see a decrease in the forced vital capacity. The FEV1 does decrease. Um, it's usually, it gets interpreted as a restrictive pattern. But the diaphragm is mostly an inspiratory muscle. We don't have the best inspiratory, uh, the pulmonary function tests are not the best to evaluate diaphragm function. You can have severe dyspnea with only uh, uh, mild to moderate uh, uh, changes in the pulmonary function tests. And you can also have a very significant response to plication in terms of symptoms, and yet the function tests are, did not change all that much. Um, so I just interpret those with caution. I get them as yet another objective measure, but they don't always give me extra information. What it can help, again, is to find to make sure does the patient have bad COPD or are bad problems with diffusion capacity.
what is your approach to uh, management of this patient and, and surgical decision? Once, uh, now assuming that this is a paralysis of entration and someone without prior surgeries, um, the main thing I, I decide next is, I, I figure out is what is the patient's body habitus? Um, because that'll that'll guide my surgical approach. In patients uh, that have uh, body mass index uh, less than 30 or 32, um, we do laparoscopic, and uh, usually that's all we need to do. Uh, in patients with uh, significant central obesity, um, like males with a BMI of uh, 35 and up, or uh, females with a BMI of more than 38 or 40, um, then it's harder to do it all laparoscopically. They, you can easily access the middle and anterior part of the diaphragm laparoscopically. The posterior part is the one that becomes then more challenging in patients with obesity. And then is when I consider uh, also adding a thoracoscopic portion to complete the posterior plication, or at the very least to verify that we did get a good posterior plication laparoscopically. But let's say this patient is obese with a BMI of 38. Um, how does this change your management? And what if this patient was status post a cabbage that was done six months ago? Uh, what would be the surgical indications now and what would be the contraindications? So I guess uh, obesity we addressed, right? Um, in terms of uh, after a coronary bypass or, or cardiac surgery, I do like to wait a few months. If after six months they're still having significant dyspnea, uh, I don't think it's uh, necessary to wait the full year as it is often recommended. Um, because the patients are miserable and I don't think that application, in my opinion and my experience, doesn't interfere with any potential recovery. If eventually the nerve recovers to a certain extent, well then it can still recover in the presence of application. There's always the concern that do you injure fibers of the uh, phrenic when you do the application? And I presume you might injure some, but I still believe um, here the benefits outweigh the risks. If you can do application using a minimal invasive approach and do it well, uh, then why wait a whole year and the patient is struggling? So let's say this gentleman also has a decreased FVC and FEV1 and PFTs. You already uh, said that um, these studies are usually not great. Uh, and they don't eval diaphragmatic function the best. Um, but what if this gentleman has the decreased numbers and has dyspnea, as, as we have talked about above? What operation would you offer, and what is your approach? I, I don't think I would change anything, even if they have uh, decreased uh, pulmonary function. I, I think the you know most of them will have a certain decrease and. One thing that we get in all our patients, we get our pulmonary function tests upright and supine uh, because that's another uh, important way you can distinguish the cause of the dyspnea is if they have a significant change 
in their FVC and FEV1, once they're supine, it usually reduces uh, by a good 20-30% in these patients um, when they're supine. Uh, then it just kind of verifies your, your diagnosis if you had any doubt. Uh, otherwise, it does not change my approach, except, of course, someone who has pulmonary fibrosis and an elevated diaphragm, then it helps me know how, helps me guide my post-operative, intraoperative and post-operative management so that we minimize respiratory complications after surgery. Could you please uh, discuss with us the important steps of a laparoscopic diaphragmatic plication, the relevant anatomy, and the pitfalls? So the, um, just briefly, we use four ports. Um, the abdomen, and they, uh, when you go laparoscopically, um, of course you're insufflating the abdomen, then the diaphragm is taut and pushed cephalad. So it is hard to stitch it that way. So what we do is we make a small opening in the diaphragm with a hook cautery, then it equilibrates the pressures on that hemithorax and the abdomen and then the diaphragm becomes floppy. Um, we do let the anesthesiologist know that the patient now has a pneumothorax from a pneumoperitoneum, and I tend to place the uh, chest tube at that point because then we can control, let the thorax vent intermittently if necessary. Um, and then we, uh, now that this, this, the diaphragm is floppy, we can grab it and and stitch it. Um, the, uh, the one thing is to know when to stop. If it, you know, what, how do you gauge if you've plicated enough? And it's uh, really there are no objective ways to do it. Uh, one good hint is if you if it's taut and you want to make it tighter, then diaphragm starts tearing so then you know for sure you should stop there um, but there's no other good way to know uh, other than experience um, the uh, pitfalls on the right side the liver uh, is usually not a problem you don't need a anything to push the liver down I usually cut the falciform ligament and that helps push the liver down but it's not a problem uh, assuming someone has a normal body habitus, if they don't, then again we have to add the bats part. Um, on the left side, the only thing is to be careful uh, not to get bleeding from the spleen. Um, and the only other thing I can think of, if you're overzealous on the right side of plication and you get very close to the IVC, it could pinch the, uh, you make it very tight right close to the IVC, it could interfere with venous return, the patient can get hypotensive. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, I usually uh, use uh, number two, it's a, it's, a, it's a Tycron is the brand name, but it's a number two stitch that's braided, non-absorbable, and um, with a big needle. It's a 36 millimeter needle, and then uh, we use pledgets, and these are U-shaped stitches, and we, we do them interrupted. Um, 
sometimes we can weave a part of the application to do less stitches, and it's uh, something we can gauge uh, by patient. So, if zoom in, the, the procedure goes well. Um, what is a typical post-op course for this patient, and what is one dreaded complication, and how do you deal with it? So the uh, usual post-op course is, um, you know, it's uh, although it seems like a minor procedure, it's not. Uh, patients are usually in the hospital. Uh, a median of it's usually three or four days, and the main determinant of how long they stay in the hospital is the chest tube output. So the most important thing is not to pull the chest tube out too soon. They usually have drain higher volumes, and on these patients, I certainly wait till the drainage is less than 200 a day uh, before pulling out the chest tube, otherwise they develop pleural effusions. The, um, uh, what I do about 15% of the time, our patients have to go home with a chest tube because it's still draining, and that's the only thing keeping them at home. Uh, and I let them know that ahead of time. Really, the most dreaded complication would be visceral injury, uh, particularly if it was not detected in time. Uh, thankfully, we've not had that. I've had a couple of, I had one complication, which was, I believe, a fluke. Uh, a patient, I had made an opening in the falciform, which I've done so many times, and then a patient uh, later herniated a small bowel through that opening over the liver. So that was a fluke and he needed to be explored and, uh, and have that reduced. Um, the other thing we've noticed, which is not so much a complication, is on the left side, uh, if you have a diaphragm, elevated diaphragm, left hemi-diaphragm for a while, that could mask GERD esophageal reflux disease because the angle of hiss is accentuated. Once you fix the diaphragm, then I've noticed some people complain of more GERD. Um, so, but on only one occasion I've had to do a Nissen afterwards. Um, and then the other concern is uh, people wonder if there's uh, be any concern about injuring the lung with the stitches, uh, but we've not had that problem. Uh, and even so, I don't, the lung would be just fine, or maybe you'd have a little air leak for a little bit, but nothing else. Of course, you have to be careful not to injure the heart when you're doing your left side of placation, but it's easy to see um, where the uh, indentation is of the heart. Um, and then long-term, the uh, uh, long-term is the... Uh, Recurrence, you know, how do they do long term? We've only had uh, maybe three cases where we've had to reoperate. Uh, one was a male who was skiing downhill, you know, one or two years afterwards, a big burly gentleman, and then he fell really bad on the side and popped stitches. And then a couple were from more from our early experience where we had not done a proper placation. Uh, in terms of injuring the phrenic nerve, I'm not concerned about it since most of them, the phrenic doesn't work. And I think that goes, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, where does the sniff test fit into all this? 
I personally don't really care about the sniff test because if the patient has dyspnea in an elevated diaphragm and there's nothing else that explains why his dyspnea is so bad at this point, then a sniff test won't add anything because if it tells me that it's there's paradoxical motion, well great, we knew that. And if it tells me there wasn't paradoxical motion, well it doesn't matter because I'm still going to operate on the patient. So it's only helpful if there's a question, if it's a mild elevation, you can't quite tell. And those are usually equivocal cases where I probably wouldn't operate anyway. So in following this patient, uh, as an outpatient, I mentioned earlier that you're looking at the long-term outcomes of these patients, but um, is there, do you have any ideas as to the reported rate of symptomatic relief and uh, what percentage of patients on your practice benefit from, from this laparoscopic diaphragmatic um, glycation? So I, I believe in properly selected patients, the vast majority, and we've seen, we saw that in our, our short to midterm results, uh, have a very significant improvement. The, um, uh, we've had a couple patients where they have improvement, but then it go, it, they return back to baseline, and it's not because the plication hasn't worked, because if you looked at the chest X-ray, the plicated diaphragm is where it was before. It's more because they've had progressive other comorbidities. Um, but of course, not, there's nothing is 100%. However, it, uh, we have, uh, that's where the St. George questionnaire, the best way to assess this long-term is not pulmonary function tests, but the St. George respiratory questionnaire and chest x-rays. If the chest x-ray looks the same two years out from one month out, well, that's great. We know that placation is working. And if the symptom relief based on the St. George questionnaire uh, is the same, then good. The St. George Respiratory Questionnaire actually shows a very impressive improvement. The, um, just to kind of uh, clarify for, for those who are not familiar with that, the overall score of this questionnaire is from 0 to 100. 0 is Michael Phelps. 100 is you're pretty much dead. So a lot of these patients are around 50 or 60. So they have pretty high scores. So that means they're pretty impaired. And after surgery, it goes down to about 30. So usually the, the mean improvement in score is about 25 points, which is enormous. This score was devised in the pulmonary medicine field uh, to measure improvement when they do inhalers and stuff like that. And an improvement in four points is considered to be clinically significant. So these patients have improvements of 25 points average. So it is very significant. It's a very satisfying thing to do. It's a very satisfying procedure. They tend to be happy. Well, um, thank you, Dr. Andrade, for your insight and for your education into diaphragmatic paralysis. Thank you, Enkem. It's, uh, it's an honor, and thank you for your efforts.